Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the IFRIC and what they debated in April 2020. And to get me through that, I'm joined by the lovely Carsten Gansauger. Welcome back, Carsten. Thank you, Ruth. And you're amazing because you sit on the IFRIC so you can give us all the inside gossip, Carsten. How was it doing your, your second vir- second virtual meeting, was it? Yeah, I think that's right. It was quite quite an interesting debate, although it was quite short this time, but we had some interesting topics again on the agenda. Yeah. And how this, I'm interested in this, even if the listeners aren't, what do you, are you all muted and you have to put your hand up if you want to talk? How do you make it work in a virtual world? Well, we had, actually, there were multiple options on how you could do that. One was, you know, using the chat function. Another one was sending chat messages to the, to the staff. Yeah. <laughs> the third and- option was actually holding up your hand. But with so many, <laughs> many people on the on the video, it's... They can't see you. Yeah, You're waving and hoping right, someone yeah. sees you. And any children running in the background, barking dogs, lawnmowers, <laughs> anything like that? <laughs> no, it was all right. Not really. Okay. Oh, boo. I won't bother to watch then you can tell me you can tell me what happened so like you said it was a fairly short agenda so we had one sort of technical paper and then one I would say more educational research so let's start with the paper you talked about IS12 so tax very exciting and I think this was a tentative decision that had gone out for comment and the staff were summarizing the comments back to you can you just remind us high level what the issue was sure so so this issue was discussed in the November 2019 uh, meeting originally in response to a submission on deferred taxes where the recovery of the carrying amount of an asset gives gives rise to multiple tax consequences. So so to explain the issue, in in the fact pattern that was described in the submission, an entity acquires a license, which has a carrying amount of say 100 on initial recognition, and the entity then intends to recover that carrying amount through use. Now, the applicable tax law in that jurisdiction prescribes two tax regimes, uh, an in- income tax regime and a capital tax, capital gains tax regime, where taxes paid under both regimes meet the definition of income taxes. And so the recovering the license licenses carrying amount through use has two tax consequences. First one, under the income tax regime, the entity would pay income taxes that it you know, generates on the economic benefits it receives from use of the license, but uh, receives no tax deduction in respect of the amortization of the license. And then there's also a, a capital gains tax regime where the entity would receive a tax deduction of that same amount, 100 in the example, when the license expires. So now the submission asked how the entity would determine the tax base of the asset and consequently how it would account for the deferred tax in such a situation. Okay, perfect. And the committee, I think, received nine letters. And what did they conclude? Did they have to change anything or has it been finalized? Well, the, the comment letters overall, I think, were quite so supportive. Eight out of, out of the nine respondents agreed with the committee's decision for the reasons set out in the tentative agenda decision. And so the committee agreed to finalize the agenda decision with only a few tweaks to the final wording. In, in terms of the conclusion on the fact pattern that I just described, the committee observed that, you know, in this type of situation, the recovery of the assets carrying amount gives gives rise to 
two distinct tax consequences. That is, it, it results in taxable economic benefits from use and a capital gain deduction that cannot be offset. So the entity reflects separately the distinct tax consequences of recovering the assets carrying amounts. So, so that means that in, the fact, in this fact pattern, the entity would identify both a taxable temporary difference of 100 under the income tax regime, and in addition, a deductible temporary difference of also 100 under the capital gain tax regime. And the entity would then apply you know, the requirements in IS-12, considering the applicable tax law in that jurisdiction in recognizing and measuring deferred taxes for the identified temporary differences. So, so this means that you would apply the tax rates applicable to those amounts under each of those tax regimes. And let me check on just getting it. They do, And then they can't net those balances off. That's right. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So little tax one there been finalized. So if you feel like it affects you, have a read on the IFRIT website. Okay. Then we got into a topic which the staff have been discussing around supply chain financing. And they had done some research and presented a paper to the Interpretations Committee. And the paper talks mainly about two types of supply chain financing. They sound very complicated. Reverse factoring and dynamic discounting. Woo, that sounds exciting. So come on, Carsten, tell us all, make it sound exciting. Basic level, <laughs> what do they both mean? Yeah, sure. You know, first of all, there are a number of different supply chain financing arrangements out there. And so I think it's quite important to be precise what type of arrangement we are talking about. So the staffs did some outreach on this. And, you know, actually, there's already a bit of confusion on the terminology. So, so some would view supply chain financing as, encompass, as encompassing a number of different arrangements. However, a lot of people would also use supply chain financing just to mean reverse factoring. Now, those respondents who view supply chain financing arrangements more broadly identify actually three types of arrangements. One, refer, reverse factoring arrangements. Two, dynamic discounting that you just mentioned. And the third one is supplier inventory financing. Now, let me explain what each of those are briefly. I, I'll start with the last one and go in reverse order, I think. So supplier inventory financing. That's a situation where an intermediary, typically that would be a financial institution, purchases an item of inventory from the supplier and then sells it on to the entity. These types of transactions occur, you know, to enable, in many cases, to enable the entity to obtain longer credit terms and, you know, longer credit terms than it, it would obtain if it were to receive the inventory directly from the supplier. Now, dynamic discounting, that's an arrangement between an entity purchasing goods and a supplier. And the supplier would often offer a range of discounts that vary depending on when the entity settles its payable to the supplier. And in these types of transactions, discount is often designed to be highest on the date when the supplier would most like to be paid with lower discounts on other dates. Now, the third one is reverse factoring. And reverse factoring is an arrangement where three parties are involved, an entity that purchases a good or service, a supplier providing those goods or services, and a financial institution. And the arrangement typically allows the supplier to be paid by the financial institution at a date earlier than the entity pays the financial institution. Now, the outreach indicates that 
both dynamic discounting is not really common and also supply inventory financing is is not that common or it's, it's only common for a few entities and mainly for commodity purchases. So I think it's fair to say that if you look at these different types of supply chain financing, that reverse factoring is, is by far the most common type that we see in practice. Okay, perfect. So what you just described, I thought reverse factoring was supply chain financing. I didn't even know there are other types. So there we go. I've learned something today. Thank you, Carsten. But so I'm, I've learned a new word, reverse factoring. And the paper then focuses on reverse factoring. How do you actually or how do entities account for reverse factoring? Right. Now, there's quite a bit of diversity around the accounting for reverse factoring arrangements. The The outreach performed by the staff indicates that this may reflect the different terms of each arrangement. I would agree with that, but would probably add that I think this may also be due to a level of judgment involved in terms of how to account for these arrangements. So in terms of the accounting, I think we need to look at three areas. One, the statement of financial position, obviously, the presentation in the statement of financial position. Two, presentation in the statement of cash flows. And three, the area of disclosures. So I, I would cover each of these areas separately. If we start with the first one, statement of financial position, the issue really is, you know, around assessing the requirements for derecognition of financial liabilities in IFRS 9. So those requirements would require an entity to, to derecognize a financial liability. So in this case, accounts payable typically when the liability is extinguished or there has been substantial modification to that liability. So for the arrangements that we see in practice, entities often would not derecognize its trade space, its trade payables, especially when it receives no extension of credit terms. And that's because in, in these situations, entities often conclude that their obligation is not as extinguished and there's no substantial modification. In addition, the entity might in fact be unaware of whether and when the financial institution has paid the supplier before the invoice's due date. So entities would consider a number of factors in determining whether there has been a substantial modification. For example, whether the nature of the liability has changed or whether the credit terms have changed. In, in some cases, entities de-recognize trade payables and instead would recognize other financial liabilities. This could, for example, be the case when the reverse factoring arrangement legally novates the payable to the financial institutions. But I think in practice, reverse factoring arrangements are quite often designed to ensure the entity can continue to report the liability as a trade payable. And finally, respondents say that entities typically, but not always, reclassify trade payables as, as other financial liabilities when a reverse factoring arrangement allows the entity to pay its liability later than the invoice date. So that's the presentation in the statement of financial position. If we move on to the second area, statement of cash flows, the classification of cash outflows on settlement of the liability typically would follow the classification of the liability in the statement of financial position. So that means that if an entity classifies its liability as a trade pay bill in its statement of financial position, it will typically classify the cash outflows on settlement of that liability as an operating cash flow. In contrast, if the entity classifies the liability as, as other financial liabilities, it would typically classify the cash outflow as a financing cash flow. So I think that's quite important because th that means if the entity classifies the cash outflow as a financing cash outflow, it would report lower operating cash outflows mm -hmm. than the entity that is not using a reverse factoring arrangement. I think that's quite an important factor to consider. So in, in, in this situation, 
if it's classified as a financing cash outflows, there are again, you know, two possible presentation methods. And I think we are seeing both of them in practice. The first one would be to disclose a non-cash transaction under the requirements in IS-7 and just show a financing cash outflow. The other method would be to, to gross up the cash flows in the reverse factoring arrangement. So in other words, the entity would present a cash outflow from operating activities and a cash inflow from financing when the financing is provided. And then again, a cash outflow from financing when the entity settles the liability. So you would gross up the cash flows, effectively show three cash flows in the statement of cash flows. Now, the final area I would like to mention, and I think that's probably, uh, you know, in my mind, very important one, is the whole area of disclosures. Actually, the outreach indicates that entities often do not disclose the existing existence of reverse factoring arrangements. Entities presenting amounts owed under reverse factoring arrangements as other financial liabilities often do disclose information or more frequently disclose information than those presenting amount owed as trade payables. So personally, I feel that actually there are already quite a few presentation and disclosure requirements that would apply under current IFRS requirements to reverse factoring arrangements, including those in IS-1 and those in IS-7 around non-cash transactions. But it appears that, you know, not, not all of these disclosure requirements are, you know, considered in, in, in detail in practice. Brilliant. So three things there that we need to look at. The actual statement of financial position, is it a trade payable or financial liability? Then cash flows follows what you've done in the statement of financial position, but also thinking about do you present them gross? And then last thing is disclosure. Always important. Hopefully I didn't miss anything. Okay, so big old paper they took you through on doing some research of what people do. What What are the next steps? What are they going to do with that paper? Right. So so the paper provided only background information about supply chain financing arrangements. And so it was only a research paper at this stage, and the committee was not asked to make any decisions. In, in terms of next steps, it is anticipated that the staff would bring another paper to, to the probably through the June meeting that includes a staff analysis of the application of IFRS standards to such arrangements and the staff recommendation uh, for the committee's consideration. Personally, I think that one of the biggest concerns here is probably around the transparency in accounting for reverse factoring arrangements. So my sense is that the paper that will be brought back to the June meeting will likely consider whether any standard setting may be necessary to increase transparency. And I I think regardless of whether or not that's the case, I think it's quite likely that we will see a thorough analysis of currently applicable requirements for such arrangements, including those on presentation and disclosure for for such arrangements. Okay, brilliant. So we're going to see this back in June, and I feel like it might linger on. (laughs) I feel like there's (laughs) lots of work to come. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, good. Well, we wouldn't want to not have new exciting things to talk about. Okay, lovely. Thank you, Carson quick one today because the just two things on the agenda when when's our next ifric may june, june uh, the i think one? yeah i think the next one yeah okay perfect well we'll definitely speak to you i'll speak to you before that but the listeners will speak to you again in june so thank you very much for joining us thank you to the listeners for listening and happy accounting and stay safe the preceding program was brought to you by price waterhouse coopers llp This content is for general information purposes 
and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.